the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What a great morning we've had already, just worshiping the Lord and being reflecting, reflecting on the stains of our sin that were washed white as snow. Some of you who have been around will recall that a year and a half ago, uh, my son was sent to the emergency room for incredible stomach pains. And they thought initially that it was appendicitis, and so they were uh, preparing us for an emergency appendectomy. And after further tests and after things subsided, they realized that it wasn't his appendix, appendix, and it was fine. And the pain went away. He got hydrated, and they let him go after a night or two in the hospital. What we didn't realize was, in hindsight, and the medical professionals, the doctors in the emergency room didn't realize that at the time and still haven't said anything, that a year and a half ago, that was the beginning of his diabetes, which was diagnosed just two weeks ago. I was reminded of that this morning as we continue our study of partiality. Now, partiality is probably one of those topics where you read a couple verses and you say, I get it. It's bad. What's the next topic, James? And James goes, hold on, there's more. And then it gets deeper and deeper. What started as a wrong diagnosis of appendicitis and just a stomach ache gets worse and worse. He goes on and says, no, this is bad. This is helping the world and the world persecutes you. Like, oh yeah, okay, James, I get it. But wait, he says, there's more. You are violating the greatest commandment. You are not loving. And then he keeps going on to our passage this morning seemingly a different topic, but still in the context of partiality, starts talking about how partiality is connected with future eternal judgment. How did you get from doing what was socially normal? Thank you for visiting, sir. Here's a seat up front for you. Why are you here? You stand back here. Totally socially acceptable for the rich versus the dirty and poor to talking about judgment and mercy or the lack of mercy. Well, things are not always as they seem. The Christian life is filled with such illustrations and examples where we say, well, I know I need to stop doing this or I need to start doing that. And someone says, yeah, but you've got to understand and look at the heart. Let's figure out what's going on behind closed doors. Why are you doing this or not doing that? And the issue becomes bigger and bigger. Not because we're dramatic, but because God is holy. Because God is concerned about the heart. God is not fooled by all the externals that is rampant in our world and rampant in every single religion outside of biblical Christianity. doesn't matter what your heart is, they say. It's your actions And then you dump all of those actions on some proverbial heavenly scale. And if good outweighs bad, then you enter into heaven. 
Some go so far as to say you get a second, third, fourth, fifth chance if that scale does not go the way you want. And that's why this is so important. This is why it's so important for the Christian not just to walk into those doors, behave a certain way. It's to look at our hearts and understand the bigger picture. And that is one of the reasons so often in Scripture and here in James chapter 2, the Lord superintending the writers of the New Testament go deeper and deeper so that we will fully understand the magnitude of the issue even if there are zero social consequences. And I think it would help to understand the depth of where we're going as we look at judgment of all things in terms of partiality. And not just any judgment, both eternal judgments. The judgment of believers, yes, that exists, as well as the condemnation judgment of unbelievers. It could be confusing if we just pick out verses 12 through 13. So I want to invite you to turn to James chapter 2, verse 1, and we'll read all the way through 13 to get the background and an understanding of the logical flow from the example in the early church, a practical, very real example, to what he says to us this morning in verses 12 and 13. James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however... You are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And in those last two verses, verses 12 through 13, I want to present to you this morning three joys of judgment in the Christian life. Three joys of judgment in the Christian life. There is joy in judgment, and we will see why. The first is the joy of devotion. The joy of devotion. Look at verse 12 again. In light of everything that he has said, and then ending right before verse 12, talking about fulfilling the law versus breaking the law, he says, so speak and so act, as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. He is speaking to Christians here. 
and on the heels of explaining how any sin is a transgression or a breaking of the law, the whole law of God, James now explains how we are to behave in light of the judgment that is coming for all Christians. Understand that all that will be said about speaking and acting is again ultimately about the heart. Yes, it is important what you act, what, how you behave, what you do, as well as what you say, but it's also important what your heart is behind those actions and words or lack thereof, because out of the heart comes forth those actions and those words. And for the Christian, those actions and words are to be chosen with future judgment in mind. We often live and speak and act with salvation in the past in mind. And now James is saying, well, you also need to behave with the future in mind. And James reminds us, Christians, that we are those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. It is a common misconception that Christians in the end, the end of days, the future will be judged will not be judged by God rather that's the misconception that Christians will not be judged by God we will be we will not face condemnation God's wrath will not fall upon us because we won't face judgment in the sense of being declared guilty for sins unpaid because they have been paid for by Jesus Christ however we will all face at the end of days a judgment that is specifically for believers. Unbelievers will not be at this judgment. And that judgment is spoken of in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-10. through 10. And I'd like you to turn there and see this in your own Bibles so we can understand this judgment because there is a lot of confusion. And if this is the first you've ever heard of this, that's okay. We're going to clarify this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-10, through 10, uh, but in another passage in 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-10, through 10, is where this judgment for believers is mentioned. It says, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. Stop there. Obviously, this is speaking of Christians. Unbelievers do not have as their ambition wherever they are to be pleasing to Him. So we know this is within the context of Christians. Verse 10, For we must all be appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And so we see this is not judgment in the sense of heaven or hell or condemnation to eternal damnation. This is so that we can be recompensed, rewarded for our deeds in the body, simply means our deeds while here on earth in these physical bodies, whether good or bad. 1 Peter 1.17, don't, don't turn there, tells us that the Father, quote, impartially judges according to each one's work, also referring to believers. Now, the judgment that is mentioned here in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 and 10, specifically in verse 10, it says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 
we know it as theologically in the church, we refer, this, refer to this as the Bema seat, okay? Bema is simply the Greek word for judgment, judgment seat, Bema seat. We give it a title to distinguish it from the great white throne of judgment, which we'll talk about in a moment, which is for unbelievers. So we could see where that comes from. Right there it says judgment seat. If you were to translate that word judgment into the Greek, it would say bema seat. So that's simply what we call it, the bema seat. Okay, it can get a little confusing if we call it judgment seat because then what judgment are you referring to? If you know Greek, probably still confusing. But the human extra-biblical doctrinal theological title that Christians over the years have assigned to this is the bema seat. Okay? Take it literally and you'll get very confused. Bema seat is only for Christians. Okay, you get this. You say, Roger, move on. We're not dummies. All right. So the Bema seat comes from the passage we just read in 2 Corinthians 5. It's also mentioned in Romans 14.10. And the great white throne of judgment, which is for unbelievers, is in Revelation 20. That is only for unbelievers. Now, what we are concerned about this morning is the Bema seat, the judgment of Christians, which is mentioned in 2 Corinthians 5, but described in 1 Corinthians 3. So if you turn back a few pages uh, to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, we'll take a look at what this Bema seat refers to. Some people, by the way, just as filler, as you're taking time to turn there, someone will, some people will say this is the Bema seat judgment, okay, which is fine. But that's kind of like saying and, etc., right? It's like saying this is the judgment seat judgment, okay? So Bema seat, whatever, it's okay. 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 15. Let me read that for you. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. And if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. And this is key, this last phrase in understanding we're talking about believers, but he himself will be saved yet so as through fire. Taken out of context, and we don't have time to look at it, but just real quickly, taken out of context of 1 Corinthians 3 and the entirety of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5, Romans 14, all those other passages I've referred to, you can see how someone can take just this passage and say, see, heaven or hell based on works. Context is so important. Now, I filled in the context for you loosely, but we're talking about believers here, okay? He will be saved yet so as through fire. So, there is a judgment, and what this judgment does is it determines the quality of every single believer's earthly deeds for the sake of eternal reward. So that which is not honoring to the Lord will be in this illustration like wood, hay, and straw that as you know, if you throw it in a fire 
it will be burned up and there will be nothing left. But good works, that is the words and deeds that accord with Scripture and emanate from the right heart, are like gold, silver, and precious stones. Just like the last time you threw gold, silver, and precious stones in your fire. I know you've never done that. But you see the picture here. They will remain. They will not burn up. They will come through the fire to be shown as worthy of the Lamb and thus result in eternal reward. And so everything we have done as believers in this life will go through this judgment. The picture is a fire and different materials. He will put it through the fire and some of the stuff will be like, Hey, that time you went to church, but you were really sinning in your heart. You only went to church because you were trying to impress your small group leader or whatever. That's going to burn. But those times when you were worshiping, whether at church, that time that you prayed with your family and said, thank you, Lord, for this food, and you were truly thankful, that's silver, gold, and precious stones. And whatever remains after the fire, you will be given reward according to what remains. That is it. I mean, that's a lot, but that is it. Because this is not a judgment of believers for eternal condemnation. That has already been dealt with on the cross. This judgment is for those who are already saved and thus have eternal reward promised. But the judgment is necessary to determine and measure how much of that promised reward you actually get. Now, this is the judgment that we need to keep in mind back in James throughout our time on earth. Speak and act as those who will be judged, or perhaps uh, more fittingly, speak and act knowing that doing so rightly will gain you more reward in heaven forever. What we are judged by, back in James chapter 2, verse 12, is the law of liberty. This is the second time James has referred to it as the law of liberty. The first time was back in chapter 1, verse 25. This isn't the Mosaic law or the Old Testament law, but it is that law as interpreted and altered to some degree by Jesus Christ. It's the New Testament. And by calling it this, James emphasizes the freedom, the liberty we have as believers in the gospel. Freedom from the bondage of sin and the freedom to pursue and live out righteousness. In other words, as believers, as born-again Christians, we now have the freedom to live the way mankind was created from day one to live. Listen as I read John chapter 8, verses 31 through 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and here's that powerful passage, and the truth will make you free. For the Jew, of course, we understand that there was a a, a religious bondage, a religious burden that the rabbis over the years had put on them, the the Pharisees had put all these laws, and so there was a freedom from all of that, the freedom to feel like you have to perform to earn your salvation. But there's also also freedom for us who were not under those uh, rabbinic laws, a freedom from sin, 
a freedom from the enslavement of sin, and the freedom to pursue holiness and righteousness. Now, as those who have been freed from the shackles of sin, it is this law of liberty, the gospel, by which we will be judged. So on the one hand, judged as those whose sins are forgiven and paid for on the cross. On the other hand, judged as those who are free to honor God with our words and our works so that our reward will be based on conformity to this law of liberty, to the gospel. So that's the means or the basis of the judgment. What is gauged according to that criteria is what we speak and act. Now the words here in James 2, speak and act, refer to habitual actions. This is to be the characteristic of our lives. So one bad day, one sin, one off does not negate all heavenly reward, nor does one act of obedience stockpile reward. It should be the pattern of our lives. Specifically, this refers back to the behavior we have seen thus far in James, specifically not showing partiality, but showing love. Back at the end of chapter 1, remember, ministering to widows and orphans. But more generally, this is speaking of all obedience, being doers of the word, as we saw in one twenty-two. James later in our next series or section, if you will, will segue into speaking of the works that come out of true saving faith. So all Christian works. Now this principle has eternal consequences, but is practiced all the time by you and I in relation to things of the world, day to day. The principle of acting or doing certain things because of something that's coming in the future. Right? We tell high school students, Think and act, knowing that you will one day apply to college. Study, learn. We tell college graduates, speak and act as those who need a job to pay your bills by applying for jobs. Interview well. We tell our coworkers, speak and act as those who need to keep their job by doing what the job requires. And James tells Christians to speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty by obeying the Lord. The principle then is to live now based on what you know is coming in the future. College, bills, retirement, for us, eternal reward. And unlike the ancient Jew or the modern legalist, we do so not out of the fear of condemnation, but out of the freedom, law of liberty, the freedom of forgiveness, loving God because He first loved us, 1 John 4.19. This is why there's joy in devotion. There is joy in obeying, knowing that there is a future judgment in where our works will pass through the fire. And at the end of that, there will be reward. No punishment, no prison, no guilty verdict, just reward. The legalist says, I have to obey. The true Christian says, I get to obey. This is the joy of devotion. And this perspective only comes when one is truly devoted to God and desires to honor Him. Now, along with devotion to God is the idea of being like God, Christ-like. That's our second joy in judgment, the joy of divinity. The joy of divinity. We're looking at three joys of judgment in the Christian life. The joy of divinity is our second one. In other words, 
the joy of being like God, being godly, being Christ-like. Look at the beginning of verse 13. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. We know that one of the great themes of Christianity is that of mercy, the mercy of God. We just sang it. Which can be loosely defined, mercy can be, in its biblical context as, and you've probably heard this before, withholding something someone deserves. Okay, so within the Christian context, within the context of the gospel, we talk about what we've earned, what we deserve is wrath, punishment, condemnation. God withholds that. We say that is His mercy. It is often contrasted with grace, which is giving something, not withholding something, but giving something that is also undeserved. And so forgiveness of sins, blessings, salvation, those kinds of things. Clearly, we see how these play out in the gospel. As a believer, you receive grace in that you are given a righteousness that you have not earned. What you have earned is God's wrath, which in Christ is removed from you, kept from you, so that would be mercy. Generally speaking, mercy is compassion, it's favor, it's an act of kindness. Mercy is a characteristic of God that is inseparable from our salvation, and it is crucial in His sustaining of this world, right? Rather than destroying it now, He is sustaining it until a certain time within his plan, but he must show mercy even towards the unregenerate, the unbelieving world in order to continue to lavish again his grace. The sun still shines, right? Even when the clouds block it, you know it's there. The earth continues on its access. Babies are still born. People are growing up. Things like that, okay? Grace and mercy. And with that understanding... You can see how mercy, as well as being merciless, is an aspect of judgment. Again, for the believer, we will not be condemned for our sins. Rather, we will be ushered into an eternity with God because Christ paid the price for our sins. And this withholding of condemnation and wrath is not earned by us. It's not because we are so good. It's because of God's mercy. For the unbeliever who has rejected the lordship and forgiveness of Jesus Christ, there will be no mercy because they will receive the just penalty of their own deeds, wrath and condemnation. God's not going to hold back what they have earned because they are not covered by the blood of Jesus Christ because they have not accepted Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, we understand when we look at the unbeliever that this is a result of total depravity. Again, a theological term. It's simply the corruption of human nature such that they are incapable of saving themselves. And consequentially, since they do not turn to the one who can save them, they are by nature children of wrath. That's a terminology used in Ephesians chapter 2. Total depravity entails being enslaved to sin. Not just committing sin, but loving it. Being completely enmeshed in it such that they are incapable of not sinning. Again, total depravity. This does not mean that the unbeliever is sinning all the time. 
It doesn't mean, for example, that every single thing that comes out of their mouth is a lie or that they are incapable of being patient or loving their children. It does mean, however, that their morality, even when externally looks similar to ours, falls short of the glory of God and is ultimately man-centered and selfish. In other words, it will resemble the standards of society rather than the countercultural standards of Scripture. One of the ways that their social standards will look normal in the world is through the practice of partiality. The unbeliever is the one that James is talking about in the first part of verse 13. It's the unbeliever here. Because of the context, we know that showing, quote, no mercy is a reference back to showing partiality. In the immediate context of verse 8, this is the opposite of love. Unbelievers then who show partiality will be shown no mercy in judgment. What is merciless judgment? It is judgment that will carry out justice in the strictest way. Prosecuted to the full extent of the law, we say today. In God's judgment, this means that every sin will get its full punishment from the Lord. This kind of judgment, James says, is for the one who shows no mercy. It's the principle, and don't turn there, but it's the principle we see in Matthew chapter 7, 1 and 2, which says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. This is basically the concept of, in the Latin, lex talionis, in the Old Testament, in the ancient world, it's the law of reciprocity. Perhaps you, you know it better as an eye for an eye. This kind of judgment is for the one, again, quote, who has shown no mercy. And this would describe the unbeliever. To show no mercy entails the failure to care for other people. The description here is, again, of the unbeliever because caring for other people is a distinctively Christian characteristic as we emulate our Father in heaven. You see, mercy is more than just having a feeling of concern. It is actively going out of your way to reach out and show love to others. We'll talk more about this when James talks about works as evidence of true faith. But in this context, any form of discrimination, partiality, or favoritism is the opposite of care. It's the opposite of love, as we saw recently. So again, within this context, this would be especially evident in how someone treats the poor. A contrast is clearly made with who we are by God's grace. When we see the partiality of the world or the partiality that the world practices as normal, we recognize it as sin and part of their sin nature. In fact, in understanding the, the truth of total depravity, we understand that they have no other choice. Yes, it bothers us, but they're totally depraved. They're enslaved to their sin. Do you really expect them to be impartial, to not judge in their hearts, to not play favorites, to be unable to see other people as more important than themselves, we, of course, they can't do those things. They are enslaved to sin. Which, again, further down my rabbit trail here, reminds us again that we have no reason to be arrogant, proud, or cocky that we can do those things. 
because it is by grace. But back to the text. We understand that we as Christians are no longer among them. We live among them, but you, you understand what I'm saying. By God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we know better, we see better, we love better. Again, all because of what God has done for us, and so we rejoice. But this is more than just being happy that you don't have it as bad as they do. It's not just being happy that they're going to be condemned and we are not. This is also about understanding the holiness of God. If you've been around at our church for any amount of time, it's no surprise that I went there. It's always about the holiness of God. In the character of God, it is right and good that He withhold mercy from those who are not His children. Believe it or not, as much as our English may confuse things, part of His wrath upon sin shows His goodness. It shows His justice, His fairness. It highlights His mercy when He doesn't show mercy when it is not logical or just to do so. Don't we think about that in our courts of law? We don't say, oh, I'm so thankful for such a just and fair judge because the jury said guilty, and the, but the judge let him go. We don't think that way. We would say, this guy needs to be put in prison. The judge needs to be in prison, right? When he does with criminals what he's supposed to do with criminals, according to the law of the land, we say, that's a good judge, And so even when he shows no mercy, that highlights how merciful he is in our lives with an understanding that in our lives it's because of what Jesus Christ has done. Often in the Christian life, we get so used to his mercy. And I get that. We don't see it. right? We don't have a visualization of what the condemnation and punishment of sin looks like. We're not even fully clear in our mind's eye of what hell is like. Right? There's movies, there's descriptions, but we're not sure exactly what it looks like and definitely not what it feels like. And let's be honest, we weren't there when Jesus was crucified and so we don't even fully understand what that's all about. And there are people living at that day who were one at Jesus' crucifixion, but saw the dozens, if not hundreds, of other people crucified and know that's pretty bad. We don't fully understand. But we get used to His mercy. And we get used to His grace. And we forget that His mercy and His grace are not things that we are owed. In fact, we so expect His gifts that we often forget about mercy and only talk about grace. It reminds me of that phrase, the customer is always right. Remember that? Our society has become so accustomed to always being right as the customer that they are now pushing past the limits of civility and logic and even the law demanding whatever they want and whenever they want it. Customers always right. And the Internet is filled with first-hand accounts and videos of customers throwing tantrums, throwing food, 
because they had to wait five minutes or because one thing was cold or because it came with ketchup and I said no ketchup. And that's me being kind. You see people throwing hard objects right at the people working behind the counter. Forks, trays, hard trash cans. But hey, the customer is always right. And I think that's the same attitude we can have. Ah, grace, grace, grace. We forget the true meaning and the cost of God's grace. Expecting and demanding instead of thinking and worshiping. I was thinking about our world today. And, you know, sometimes people call other people a jerk, like strangers. You jerk! Or some other similar expletive. It used to be you would call someone a jerk because they were being a jerk. They were constantly being rude to you for no reason. They were bullying you. They were a jerk. Then our society grew and you call someone a jerk for one action, but justifiable because they put you in harm's way. They cut you off. They almost hit you when you're crossing the road as a pedestrian. And that surge of adrenaline and fear, you jerk! Now, in 2023, someone's a jerk or worse simply because they have inconvenienced you in the slightest. They don't put the pedal to the metal the second it turns green. Right? They make you wait three seconds to finish their phone call before talking to you. This is our world today. And as we grow in comfort with God's grace and become so familiar with it, we can become like that. And one little trial, one little difficulty, say, what in the world is this? We don't call God a jerk. We don't dare. Well, we sure complain, don't we? Tempted to sin, let down our guard, don't yell at God, want to yell at someone, and there's your spouse. They're your kids. Oh, beware when you as an adult, your parent calls right when you're in a bad mood. You let mom and dad have it. Their 70s and 80s screaming at them on the phone just because you're in a bad mood. And we forget because, hey, God's grace, the Christian is always right. Get what we want. We need to be careful. We are reminded of the mercy of God. We are told that our judgment is guaranteed to be full of mercy, but let's not forget why. It is not of ourselves, but the goodness, grace, and mercy of God. And that mercy was merciless on the cross where our sins were pinned upon an innocent man. And if all of that doesn't bring you joy, I don't think anything can. Brothers and sisters, there is a joy in belonging to Jesus Christ. There is joy in divinity which fleshes out in our mercy toward others. But that mercy is made possible 
by the ultimate mercy found in our God. The joy of divinity. The joy of being like Christ. Well, we're looking at three joys of judgment in the Christian life. We've seen the joy of devotion, the joy of divinity, and number three, the joy of deliverance. The joy of deliverance. By the way, I'll be the first to admit, you understand that my sermon outline is not Scripture. I'm just trying to be Mr. Fancy Pants by being all letter Ds. But devotion, divinity, deliverance, if you think about it, are really all the same thing. But the joy of deliverance, the end of verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. Contrary to the merciless judgment faced by the one who shows no mercy is the one who does show mercy which triumphs over judgment. And it's because of this phraseology that we understand that we're talking about unbelievers in the first part of the verse and now believers. Here mercy is referring to the mercy shown by man. This time James is speaking of the believer. This is not the mercy shown by God. As Christians, we show mercy out of a desire to obey the law of liberty. This desire is an indication of a heart that has been made right by God and subsequently filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, the heart that shows mercy is a heart that has been shown mercy. To put it another way, showing mercy on the part of the Christian is evidence of true faith, which is why it triumphs over judgment. This starts with the fact that God is merciful and His mercy is most evident in our salvation. Listen, 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Ephesians 2.4 and 5 After listing all of the various descriptions of the enslavement of sin and saying we were once like that. In verses 4 and 5, Paul says, God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when you were dead in your transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then Romans 15.9 speaks of Gentiles glorifying God for His mercy. As Christians... Our primary goal in life is to glorify God. And we do this by being like Him as much as possible. And when it comes to mercy, this becomes evident in the teachings of Christ that we are to emulate that. Would you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew to look at some of the teachings of Jesus Christ and how He commends mercy to our behavior. The Gospel of Matthew We'll start in chapter 5, verse 7. It's in the midst of the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 7 says, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jump ahead a chapter to Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Then Matthew 9, 13 Quoting Hosea 6.6 in Matthew 9.13, Jesus tells them, go and learn what this means. And here's the quote of Hosea 6.6. 
I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. The word compassion there in the Greek is the same word as mercy. And what James is saying is that there will be no judgment of condemnation because of your salvation. The evidence of that salvation is here showing mercy towards other people. Take this all back to the theme of partiality, and we are once again told that partiality is inconsistent with true saving faith because it is inconsistent with the character of God, specifically here, His mercy. And the unbeliever will be judged because of his lack of mercy seen in partiality, which again, of course, is connected to his unbelief. But the believer will not be judged because of his practicing of mercy seen in love. You see, the Scriptures stating stating things this way often, describing the unbeliever's behavior as a reminder, almost with its shock value, of who we are and how we are to behave. You see this all over the New Testament, right? Even in the Old Testament, as God, through the prophets, would talk about what the enemies were doing, and often then they would turn to Israel and say, and now do you do this too? And we see that principle, uh, that literary device, if you will, seen in the New Testament as well, where oftentimes uh, the depraved behavior of unbelievers is given to us, often to remind us of how we used to be and to highlight the wonders of our salvation, but also to show us how we are not to behave, the lifestyle and behavior that we have been saved from. And that's what he's doing here. Namely, We are believers who are not to live like the unbelieving world as far as how we show mercy or don't show it, show partiality or avoid it because we are the chosen of God. And even though we're talking about judgment, this should excite you. This should give you a drive and a motivation to further repent of every ounce of favoritism in your heart. Because only the true Christian truly understands biblical joy, biblical joy, which only comes from God and is experienced even in the midst and promise of judgment in devotion, in divinity, and in deliverance. Three joys of judgment in the Christian life. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness, your goodness, your compassion, your mercy toward us. May we go and do likewise and not think that mercy is just withholding our wrath, but help us to see where we are lacking mercy and our judgment, judgmental hearts or minds or showing partiality and favoritism. Or what a hard thing to deal with, but we know by your help we can do it. But we first must be made aware, and so I pray that you would help us be aware. 
Thank you so much that we will be judged, but we will be judged in a, a righteous and holy way in light of your grace and mercy shown to us on the cross. And though some may be little, some may have little, and some may have a lot, we will all get reward that is promised. We do pray for the ones who show no mercy by habit, by character, because they are not saved, who are with us this morning, or you have sovereignly allowed them to stumble across the, this sermon online or on the radio. I pray that you would help them to see that there is mercy from the Lord that they can partake of, that you would bring them to saving knowledge of Christ, that ye would accept you and repent, confess you as Lord and Savior, believe the truths of what you did and experienced, and thus begin a life of showing mercy in emulating his newfound Lord. And for us, Lord, who are believers, continue to grow us, strengthen us, May we live in light of a recognition of your mercy that we may go and do likewise. In Jesus' name. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.